1: hello and welcome to daily wisdom walking the path with the buddha i'm really pleased that you decided to join us today because we're going to be doing our Pali Canon in english study group where we study the words of the buddha we're in volume 12 of this book series which has 13 volumes and we're studying chapters 41 through 50. students read these chapters typically prior to class And then we come to class and read them together as a group, and then I share teachings on the actual chapters and open up to any questions that you guys have. That's why we call this a study group, that we're really coming together to study, and I'm here to provide you guys guidance. And students who choose to study individually on their own prior to class, then they might come to class with certain questions, or there might be certain questions that pop up while you're actually studying. If you haven't studied these chapters prior to class, it's okay because we're going to read them in class and you'll be able to learn right along with the group and then learn any teachings that I might share. If you're interested in reading prior to class, you can download these books from buddhadailywisdom.com. From there, you'll see a link for free books and all the books are listed there because each week we study 10 chapters. Now, a chapter could be anywhere from a half a page or even a quarter of a page, upwards of you know a few pages. But typically, it'll take you about an hour or so to read all 10 chapters. And then what I suggest is that students really only read about 10, 15, 20 minutes a day because that way you read one or two chapters in that 10 to 20 minutes gives you time to reflect from reading that one or two chapters till the next day. Whereas if you sat down and you attempted to read all 10 chapters at one time, that's a lot of content coming into the mind. It's like taking a big bite out of a piece of pizza and trying to you know, chew that. It's a lot harder to digest rather than taking smaller bites. So if you take smaller bites through your reading, you'll be able to digest it a lot better and you'll be able to reflect on it in order to really help it permeate in the mind and then be able to apply it in your life in order to get the benefits of practicing the teaching. So that's what I suggest for students. What you choose to do is totally up to you, but I suggest for you to take little smaller bites and this way you'll gain much more insight having that time to reflect about the chapters that you're reading. Now sometimes we will actually do meditation before class or as we're leading into the actual reading. But today, we have a good number of pages to read, so we're just going to move right in to actually reading the chapters rather than doing meditation. So I'll just turn things over to all of you, specifically our moderators who are in Zoom. And as you guys coordinate to read, then after you read, I will deliver some teachings. And then after that, you can ask any questions you like by putting those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand electronically in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. So I'll just turn things over to all of you guys.
2: Yes, thank you, sir. I'll read uh, chapter 41. Misunderstanding regarding listening to the great birth sermon. An Arahant, fully enlightened Buddha named Maitreya by the words of the Buddha. The words of the Buddha in the Pali Canon illustrates the arising of an Arahant, fully enlightened Buddha named Maitreya that states, and in that time, of the people with an 80,000-year lifespan, there will arise in the world a fortunate one, an Arahant, fully enlightened Buddha named Maitreya, endowed with wisdom and conduct, a well knower of the worlds, incomparable trainer of men to be tamed, teacher of gods and humans, enlightened and fortunate, just as I am now. He will thoroughly know, having realized it by his own experience and proclaim, this universe with its its heavenly beings and Maras and Brahmins, its ascetics and Brahmins, and this generation with its princes and people, just as I do now. He will teach the teachings, lovely in its beginning, lovely in its middle, lovely in its ending, in the spirit and in the letter, and proclaim, just as I do now, the holy life in its fullness and purity. He will be attended by a company of thousands of monks, just as I am attended by a company of hundreds. This was all the words of the Buddha mentioned in the Pali Canon regarding the arahant, fully enlightened Buddha named Maitreya. An arahant, fully enlightened Buddha named Maitreya by unreliable literature. Fra Malai Kam Luang is a Buddhist literature which does not appear in the Pali Canon. The period of Maitreya is found in a scripture called Malai Discourse, which talks about a Buddhist monk named Malai who was born in Sri Lanka, attended Arah, attained Arahant, and had a supernatural power. He was able to travel to hell, distinguish the fire burning in hell, destroy a red-hot metal cauldron, extinguish sorrow for hell beings, able to travel to heaven and bestow lotus to the Kulamani shrine, converse with Fra Sri Aria, and informed that humans want to be reborn in Fra Si Arya era. Monk Sri si instructed monk Malai to tell people on earth to always make merit, practice generosity, and follow the Buddhist precepts. Whoever listens to the story of Fra De Santara in the Great Birth Sermon that comprise a thousand incantations within one day and bestow different type of lotuses, one thousand lotuses each, they will be reborn in the Frost Arya era, as stated in the Malai Discourse that. The future Buddha, joyful to hear this news of human beings, in Rose Apple Island said, Sir, let everyone who wishes to see me when I have attained omniscience listen to a complete recitation in one day, of the great Vesantara birth story. If they worship with a thousand lamps or a thousand lotuses, a thousand blue lotuses, blue water lilies, mandara flowers, flax flowers, a thousand banners, parasols, flags or vehicles, and bring everything to worship the teaching, they will attain arahantship along with the analytical insights at the time of my enlightenment and in my presence. A book called Kai Ro Fra Malai, Tracing Monk Malai, stated the source of Fra Malai, which can be summarized as follows. Fra Malai manuscript can be found in several literary styles. It was originated in Sri Lanka, taken to Burma, composed Malaya discourse, from Malaya discourse to Malaya heavenly being, Theravatu in Lana, Northern Thailand, And spread to Atuthea, which led to the composition of Malayavatu Dipantika in Atu Ayuthea. Moreover, various literatures were composed about monk Malai, such as Fra Malai Kam Luang, royal literature, Fra Malai Klan Swat, folk version of Fra Fra Malai that talks about hell and heaven. Fra Malai Tale, Preacher Manual Teaching Hell and Heaven, sermon version of Fra Malai used in donating merit to the deceased. In addition, the the above book also mentions the effects of Fra Malai Kam Luang on people's way of living and cultures, such as teaching them to be scared of hell and to aim for heaven, pouring water to donate merit to the deceased, listening to the Great Birth Sermon in order to meet Fra C. Arya, Framalai is also recited in weddings and funerals.
1: Okay, thank you, Miranda. So here what we've got is this first part of this chapter is describing what is in the original source teachings of the Pali Canon related to Maitreya Buddha, which is the future Buddha that the Buddha talked about. And then that second part that Miranda read is this unreliable source that has kind of precipitated a lot of misunderstanding in the world and there's other sources that has precipitated that misunderstanding as well let's first look at the words of the buddha and make sure that we're understanding that before i start talking about other things so here this first part the buddha is talking about this future buddha Maitreya to be predicted to arise in the world and there's some discourses in some other texts where the buddha is quoted with giving an actual time frame around when this Buddha would arise. Now, the Pali Canon is considered to be the largest, most complete source of all the teachings of the Buddha. But there are other canons like in China and other places that provide information that isn't necessarily in the Pali Canon. So we understand that the Pali Canon isn't fully complete because whatever the Buddha taught during his life that led countless people to enlightenment, there's no way for that to be preserved in its entirety 2,500 years later due to impermanence. And this is one of the reasons why a new Buddha is needed. But in terms of this Pali Canon, while we look to the Pali Canon in this tradition as being the original source and the most complete collection of the Buddhist teachings, there are other canons and there are other books that provide us insight to various aspects of the buddhist teachings but it's really the pali canon that is the most reliable on this topic of what the future buddha is or what is to be thought of here let's look at what's in the pali canon first and then i'll talk about some other things as well this first part where it says in that time of people with eighty thousand year lifespan a lot of times people think that what this is referring to is that one individual human would live for 80,000 years. This isn't actually possible. What the Buddha is talking about here is that the lifespan or the longevity of humanity from the point in time that the new Buddha arises is going to be 80,000 more years. So the Buddha lived over 2,500 years ago and with the new Buddha arising for example, in modern times now, then from that point forward, for 80,000 more years, humanity will last. That's what the Buddha is explaining here, because that's not physically possible for one human being to live for 80,000 years. And then he's talking about there will arise this future Buddha named Maitreya. And a Buddha is going to have deep wisdom, which the Buddha is explaining here, that endowed with wisdom and conduct, meaning they're gonna have deep wisdom about the path to enlightenment, and they're gonna have a high degree of moral conduct in the way that they function in the world. A welfarer, knower of the worlds. Knower of the worlds is one who understands the five realms. So a Buddha, as they awaken, they're gonna be able to observe their past lives in these various realms, and they're gonna be able to have observed evidence that they know that these five realms of hell, animal, afflicted spirits, the human realm, and the heavenly realm absolutely exist. A Buddha isn't going to believe anything. They're not going to be influenced by outside sources. Everything that they learn and everything that they understand is based on direct experience. So a person who is a Buddha is going to have had experience with all five of these realms and know with 100% certainty that these five realms exist and be able to teach about them. Incomparable trainer of men to be tamed. Essentially what a Buddha is doing is they're sharing teachings that will help human beings and ultimately heavenly beings as well become a better human being right? So as you're learning the teachings of a Buddha, you're training your mind to eliminate certain unwholesome qualities and arise wholesome qualities. A human being is becoming more tamed, so to speak, because the unenlightened mind functions very much like an animal, a wild animal. So becoming a better and better human being is to tame the mind. So a person who is a buddha is going to be an incomparable trainer of men to be tamed essentially able to train human beings to be more tame and they will have very skillful means of being able to do this teacher of gods and humans During the lifetime of the Buddha, people referred to him as a teacher of gods, because during that lifetime, they believed in many different gods, and also of humans, because of what I just described, helping beings to become tame. And they also looked at, during the lifetime of the Buddha, as the gods being untamed as well, because they oftentimes attributed a lot of the problems in the world to a God and that God was maybe causing an earthquake because of being angry or something like this. This isn't what actually is occurring. God is not angry. God is not upset. God doesn't cause earthquakes because of his anger, because God doesn't have that. God is more enlightened than any other being in the world. But during the lifetime of the Buddha, they believed that a Buddha is actually uh, teaching gods as well. And enlightened and fortunate. So a person who is a Buddha is, of course, enlightened, and they're very fortunate because of the qualities of their mind, being able to recall countless details about their current life and any past lives. They're very fortunate in that they have this quality of mind, which ultimately helps them accumulate a lot of wisdom over a long-term period, over multiple lives essentially a common individual, an average individual, their mind is like a hard drive that might have one terabyte of space in their mind, like a hard drive of a computer. And as they go in life, and they're creating new memories, they have to erase old memories in order to store new memories. This is why the average human can remember you know, the last five or 10 years of their life in quite a bit of detail. But if you started thinking about your childhood, you'd have splotchy memories because you've had to delete files and delete memories from the past and overwrite that with new files. But a Buddha, their memory doesn't have a capacity limit their mind ability to remember things is unlimited. So this is how they accumulate enough wisdom over multiple lifetimes to be able to get to enlightenment on their own, that they have this unique quality of mind, that they have an unlimited capacity of memory. And because of this, they're very fortunate. And this is their gamma as a result of having Uh, conducted themselves in certain ways over multiple lifetimes, they're able to have this high quality mind that they're able to remember countless details about their current life and previous lives as well. And then the Buddha says, just as I am now, And what he's referring to is this future Buddha is just as enlightened, just as wise as he is now. He obviously acquired this wisdom over multiple lifetimes. People really respected him and appreciated all the work that he did. And he delivered teachings that helped countless individuals during his life and afterwards as well. And any future Buddha will be able to do that as well, just as the Gautama Buddha is now is the way the Buddha is talking about this. He will thoroughly know, having realized it by his own experience. What this is, is that's one of the first criteria of an actual Buddha, is that in order to know the path to enlightenment, they will have had to discover it by themselves. Without any teachers, without any guides, they would need to independently discover the truth that leads to their own enlightenment. And then they will dedicate the rest of their life to share their teachings with countless others, leading countless others to enlightenment during their lifetime. And then they will preserve their teachings in such a way that countless more people can get to enlightenment after their death. So this is the first criteria of what it takes to be a Buddha, is that he will thoroughly know having realized it by his own experience, that there's no teachers or guides involved. The way that a Buddha functions is as their mind is experiencing this extreme discontentedness before enlightenment, they will apply dedication and diligence to applying techniques to try to eradicate that discontentedness. If they do a certain meditation and it works... And they've discovered that meditation that it works then they know that that's part of the path to enlightenment but if they did something for example a certain meditation and it didn't work and lead to further improvements to their mind they're going to discard it because they're going to know that it's not part of the path to enlightenment so by the time a buddha gets to enlightenment they're perfectly enlightened they only know the path to enlightenment they don't hold on to of erroneous things that have been shared with them by other people because there are no other teachers they don't have teachers they only know what led to their enlightenment this is why they have deep profound wisdom and we refer to them as perfectly enlightened and a buddha is going to proclaim those teachings that led to their enlightenment they're going to proclaim those as this is what it takes to lead to enlightenment for their students during their lifetime and for many beings after their lifetime having preserved those teachings and they're going to explain the universe essentially all the different beings in the universe heavenly beings mara brahmin which are essentially god and aesthetics and brahmin all these different beings they will understand these different beings and be able to explain them very clearly And this generation with its princes and people, you know, basically referring to the various people in the world. And, you know, these people are very prosperous, and here's the reasons why, based on the natural law of Gamma. These people are struggling in the world, and these are the reasons why, based on the natural law of Gamma. And then be able to share that with their students so that their students can more and more clearly see the natural law of Gamma. And then once again, just as the Buddha does now. He explained various populations of people during his lifetime, why they were prosperous or why they weren't, why they were harmonious in their community or why they weren't, based on the natural law of Gama, so that they could then improve and do things in a better way if they chose. This new Buddha will teach the teachings. They will share the full path to enlightenment, again, guiding countless people to enlightenment. And the Buddha says that their teachings will be lovely in the beginning, middle and end, meaning that what they say throughout their discourses is going to be helpful and beneficial to their students to be able to lead them to enlightenment. And let's see what else do we need to talk about here the holy life in its fullness and purity that's the entire path to enlightenment that's what the holy life is that when you're purging and eliminating the unwholesome qualities of mind and arising the wholesome qualities in your mind this is the holy life this is the path to enlightenment this is how to purify the mind and move it to this enlightened mental state getting rid of the conditions that are keeping it trapped in the unenlightened state He will be attended by a company of thousands of monks, just as I am attended by a company of hundreds. So what the Buddha is explaining here is this new Buddha will have a community of practitioners around them much larger than Gautama Buddha. Because Gautama Buddha, during that lifetime, he lived in a certain region of the world. He only spoke a certain language. So only people in that region of the world that spoke that language could actually learn and be students with him. So his ability to share the teachings was based on his ability to speak and communicate with the people in his time and place but any buddha that would arise today they would be able to speak in English, which would be this international language because essentially what we know about this new Buddha is that they're going to share their teachings in such a way that the entire world can gradually learn these teachings over multiple generations and everybody will have an opportunity to get to enlightenment. So this is just something that the Buddha was incapable of doing based on the limitations that he had. There was not the english language that there is now which is an international language so the audience of a new buddha who would speak in english would be you know very large based on our ability to now communicate in this international language our ability for a potential new buddha to be able to travel the world has been significantly improved based on the way things were during the lifetime of the Buddha. Gautama Buddha didn't have the same ability to travel the world as a new Buddha would be able to travel very easily throughout the world. And we also have the internet now where books and content can be shared throughout the world and relatively easily because now these conditions are such that it's likely for a new Buddha to be able to speak in English, travel easily, and share content worldwide in order to help as many people as possible, a much larger community of people than Gautama Buddha had available to them. So these are unique criteria that exist today that didn't exist during the lifetime of the Buddha. Uh, So this is what we see in the Pali Canon related to this new Buddha, Maitreya Buddha. Then there's other parts of books where it talks about time frames of this buddha arising the buddha talks about that and you know some people consider that to be uh, reliable some people don't but there's this source that the people who researched this went and found this particular source because with any particular topic the entire world's not going to agree on a particular subject or particular content so there's oftentimes misunderstandings in the world and what our tradition of Buddhist teachings do is we rely on the Pali Canon as being the original source, but there's other sources out there which what Miranda described, which is obviously not anything close to what the Buddha was actually talking about, because here, what we hear is we hear that this person was trying to fear people into being scared of hell and incentivizing people to actually get to heaven, A Buddha wouldn't actually do that. And there's other things in here talking about worship and things like that. A Buddha is not going to teach people to worship anything necessarily because, you know, worshiping a Buddha or worshiping a statue or something like this isn't going to actually lead to enlightenment. So this is one particular source with the references down here in the book that show you where this content is coming from so that if somebody was interested in looking at these, they'd be able to see that. But essentially, what I would encourage people to understand is that Gautama Buddha did describe this new Buddha that would arise in the world, and the date that most people will attribute to that is 2017 as this new Buddha arising in the world. And some people refer to this new Buddha as the world teacher, an individual who can teach the entire world because of Now being able to restore the teachings of the Buddha back into the world and being able to do that through English, through travel, through the Internet and so forth. Some people refer to this being as a world teacher and other teachings that I've seen on this attribute the date of 2017 to when this new Buddha would arise. But keep in mind that any Buddha that is going to arise, they're not going to go out and start claiming that they're a Buddha and telling people that they're a Buddha and getting on the news and making some grand announcement that they're a Buddha. This would actually be detrimental to a Buddha's work because one of the things that they're doing is they're helping their students to eliminate unwholesome qualities and arise wholesome qualities. So a Buddha can observe their student's mind much more readily if people don't know that they're actually a Buddha. If everybody knew who a Buddha was, then people would be bowing down to this person, perhaps. They would be so much in admiration that they might be on their best behavior and when they're around this person, it would hinder the Buddha from being able to see the pure qualities of their mind, the things that they were practicing that were truly wholesome, and it would hinder them from being able to see the unwholesome things and then be able to provide teachings to their students to be able to help them grow and evolve. So it would be much more advantageous to the students and to the Buddha to be able to do his work that people don't know that he's an actual Buddha. Another thing that I'll share on this topic of a new Buddha arising is that multiple traditions throughout the world, whether it's Christianity or Jewish teachings or Muslim teachings and so forth and so on, they are all kind of thinking and expecting that there's going to be some last prophet or some last appearance of somebody from their tradition. So, Gautama Buddha has talked about Maitreya Buddha. Jesus Christ talked about returning uh, to the world again. Muslims are kind of expecting another being to come into the world, Jewish people are expecting another person, and so forth and so on. What I would share is that this individual is all the same person that all these different traditions are pointing to and thinking that this is actually going to be individual people, but in reality it's one person who's actually going to be able to unite the whole world under this umbrella of the teachings that truly are going to lead to All beings being able to get to enlightenment or what Jesus Christ would have said creating heaven on earth so this world teacher would be able to actually accomplish that with people not knowing who they are and being able to just start sharing their teachings into the world and as this person chooses to share their teachings then their community is just going to continue to grow and grow and grow because they're sharing the truth And more and more people in that community are going to start observing that the quality of their mind is improving and the teachings that are being received are working. Whereas if you're being led to believe teachings or believe this person is a Buddha or believe this person is Jesus Christ or believe this person is a prophet, then you don't know what's true or false. But any world teacher, any Buddha that's coming into the world that's a true Buddha, their teachings would be able to be independently verified. And as students do that independent verification and then train their mind to eradicate unwholesomeness and arise wholesomeness, they would be able to see the quality of their mind improving and gradually getting closer and closer to enlightenment. So as this person continues to teach, you would end up seeing that more and more and more and more people would be getting to enlightenment and this Buddha wouldn't have a desire for everyone to know that they're an actual Buddha because they can actually do their work more readily without that occurring but as they go in terms of their teaching you know 10 years 20 years 30 years and so forth there's just going to be a larger and larger accumulation of people who are getting to enlightenment and those people will know that for themselves but there'll never be a time when a Buddha exists that everybody in the world would agree that this person is a Buddha. It's not going to happen that way. Instead, there's going to be certain people that agree that yes, this person is a Buddha, particularly people who are learning with that person and seeing the quality of their mind improving and getting to enlightenment and they'll know the truth. But then there's going to be people who are going to try to diminish and degrade and be hateful and angry towards this person and knock them down. But a Buddha isn't going to get discontent about that. They're not going to be dissuaded. No matter what people say about that person, that person's going to be able to persevere and prevail and continue to share their teachings regardless of what other people say or don't say. So this is just some background to help you a bit on this topic. I'm pleased to answer any questions you guys might have related to this or anything else that... I've shared about this new Buddha in the past. You can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand electronically and ask any questions that you like.
2: Yes, sir, Chrissy has a question on Facebook. Let's go to her to ask that question, sir.
3: Yes, thank you. Um, You may have already spoken about this, sir, but on Facebook, Parichit asked vulnerable teacher the lifespan of 8,000 years. Does that refer to here on earth or could be on other planets?
1: This 80,000 year lifespan, this is essentially the amount of time that all of humanity has remaining. So from the time that this Buddha arises, which other texts, show that this would be 2017 from that point forward essentially from when this buddha turns the dhamma wheel from that point forward there's going to be 80,000 more years that all of humanity will exist because we tend to think that humanity is permanent but that's just because of the lack of wisdom of the universal truth of impermanence the humanity on this planet is impermanent humans will not exist on this planet permanently so there is going to be a time when all of humanity no longer exists. And what the Buddha is explaining here and what this new Buddha would understand is that from the time that that new Buddha turns the Dhamma wheel, there's going to be another 80,000 years left for all of humanity before humanity is done and finished. And this is why that new Buddha is needed in order to bring the teachings back into the world and help as many people as possible get to enlightenment so that over the future generations that humanity can live for the rest of this 80,000 years, having created heaven on earth and be peaceful in the way that they function in the world. Thank you, sir. You're welcome.
2: It does not appear that there are any other questions at this time, sir.
1: All right. So we will move on to chapter 42.
2: Yes, sir. Let's go to Max to read chapter 42, please.
4: Chapter 42, Misunderstanding Regarding Pouring Water to Transfer Merit. To pour water when making merit for the deceased came from the Fra Malai story that he went to hell to bestow happiness to beings in hell. And those beings implore him to tell their relatives to make merit for them as written in the Fra Malai literature that all of the hell beings relieved of their suffering were peaceful and content they bowed down to in respect and asked oh Lord where have you come from bringing us such happiness the Thera answered I have come from the human realm hearing this the group in hell was overjoyed and they asked him to tell those in the human realm about the conditions of the place where they were please Lord we beg you to tell our relatives wherever they may be they named cities towns and regions far away they told him the names of their fathers and where they lived and the names of other relatives sons daughters husbands mothers sisters and brothers have all of them hastened to make merit and transfer it to us have them worship the buddha the exalted teachings and the praiseworthy community teacher of morality have them practice generosity and send the merit to us by pouring the water of donation then each of us will be delivered from suffering from the above story people have believed that by pouring water while giving a donation the merit will be transferred to the deceased thus it has become a common practice to pour water when making merit to transfer the good deeds to the deceased and enemies from a previous life the unreliable literature of from teaches wrong view that kama is created by others the buddha taught for a person with wrong view there is one of two destinations either hell or the animal realm the buddha taught that Beings are the uh, owners of their kama, the heirs of their kama. They have kama as their origin, kama as their relative, kama as their resort. Whatever kama they do, wholesome or unwholesome, they are its heirs. Additionally, the Buddha also taught the harm of explaining what has not been stated and and prescribed by the Tathagata, as having been stated, spoken, and prescribed by him. Those are acting for the unhappiness of many people for the ruin. They generate much unwholesome karma and cause the good teachings to disappear.
1: All right, thank you, Max. So this is referring to something that you will see practiced in some Buddhist temples. This is a kind of rite or ritual a little ceremony that they will do that if you in now offer some donation to a monk, they will have you take this little urn of water in a little bowl and then pour it as they're chanting. And what they believe is that they're transferring the good deeds of you offering a donation to your dead relatives. And what this research team has done is they've traced that back to one particular book. And I think this was created like 500 years ago that actually has misled people to believing this because if you misunderstand the Buddhist teachings and you're practicing things that aren't true that means you're not going to be able to experience enlightenment so if somebody is making a donation and they think that they can transfer the benefits of that donation to their dead relatives this causes all kind of problems in the world and causes all kinds of problems to that individual First of all, the individual isn't understanding what the benefits are in producing merit. The benefits are that you're practicing generosity. Generosity is one of the teachings the Buddha provided in order to train the mind to let go of craving, desire, attachment, the core problem that causes discontentedness by training the mind to let go. So as long as somebody thinks that them practicing generosity and then producing merit, which merit is to... Practice generosity towards the continued sharing of the Buddhist teachings. If you think that you can do that and then transfer that to your dead relatives, this is wrong view because you don't understand the natural law of gama that anything that you choose to do, you're going to experience the results of that, either wholesome or unwholesome. You're gonna experience the results. You can't transfer your wholesome deeds to somebody else. And if somebody believes this, be based on this unreliable text, then they're not understanding for their own practice why they need to be practicing generosity. And those relatives, as you're alive, if you think this, you're like, okay, well, I'm gonna do all these unwholesome things, and then when I die, my relatives are going to do all this hard work and then transfer their benefit to me so I can remain complacent in this life because my relatives are gonna transfer merit to me when I die. This is leading people deeper and deeper into wrong view and causing all kinds of problems here. And then the other thing is that it's changing the teachings of the Buddha. Whenever a buddha speaks whenever they arise this is a huge stepping forward for all of humanity to have a buddha in existence this is the absolute best time for anybody to attain enlightenment is that once a buddha arises they have deep 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 wisdom and if you're living during the lifetime of a buddha your gamma is very high quality to be able to live during the lifetime of a buddha and actually be learning directly from a buddha But the last thing that you would be interested in doing is changing or modifying the teachings of a Buddha because they discovered these on their own. And this is a huge benefit to the world that a Buddha would arise and be able to share their teachings for countless people to be able to attain enlightenment. So changing or modifying a Buddha's teachings is only going to cause heartache and despair and harmfulness and lack of ability for other people to get to enlightenment. So... Whoever wrote this book 500 years ago, it's been identified as you know really causing problems for a lot of people because if people aren't studying the words of the Buddha and they run across these books, then they might read them and think that these are the actual teachings of the Buddha. And the way that this reads to me from the previous chapter in this chapter is somebody seems like they have written this book as a way to scare people into thinking that hell is bad, incentivize them to thinking that heaven is good and that the way to get to these things is to give donations and to give money, right? This is uh, corruption. This is where people are being misled and perhaps somebody had uh, ill intentions that they were trying to perhaps become wealthy in terms of writing something like this. I don't know this for sure, but this is the way that it reads to me that somebody maybe had some, you know, intentions that weren't necessarily... Uh, wholesome in writing things like this and sharing things like this. Uh, So if you're learning the words of the Buddha and you get to enlightenment, it's important to not change or modify a Buddha's teachings because as you do, this is just going to make it harder for everyone else to get to enlightenment because the teachings are going to be diluted. It's important to keep the words of the Buddha as firm as possible, particularly if you end up studying with a new Buddha, this Buddha Maitreya, as individuals learn and they get to enlightenment, it's important not to change those words because then for many generations in the future, it's just going to make it really, really hard for people to be able to get to enlightenment. So here, this pouring water ceremony is not going to transfer anything over to another person. It's just a rite ritual ceremony. It's worship. It's not possible to transfer the benefits of you practicing generosity, diminishing craving in your mind to somebody else. You can't eliminate somebody else's craving. They have to do it for themselves. So what questions do you guys have on this chapter?
2: It does not appear that there are any questions at this time, sir. All
1: right, so we'll go to this next one.
2: Um yes, sir. Let's go to Tonka to read chapter 43, please. Thanks, Miranda.
5: Misunderstanding regarding holy water. The making of holy water can be found in the commentary of the Ratana discourse, which stated that it was questioned that who composed this discourse, when and where was it composed, and why. It was answered truly by many ensigned monks who interpreted the Vasali story. Thus, on the same day, the Buddha arrived in Vasali. Venerable Ananda learned, at the gate of the city, the Ratana discourse for avoiding those calamities. He recited it as protection by taking water in the Buddha's bowl, going about and sprinkling it over the entire city. The moment he spoke the word, whatever, the evil spirits who did not flee earlier and were lifted by means of such places as trash heaps, walls and the like fled through the four gates.
1: All right, thank you Tonka. So here, once again, this is a misunderstanding of something from a discourse that was written down and documented that was not during the original composing of the Pali Canon, but something that came much later and here what you see in today's times is you see this water being sprinkled on people within Buddhist temples and oftentimes the ordained practitioners are doing this. In Thai we call it namun and this is a misunderstanding that the Buddha didn't teach rites, rituals, ceremonies and worship. You can actually see in the Pali Canon where he talks about this practice that was going on during his lifetime because during his lifetime there were Hindu priests that were doing all kinds of rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship that bred a lot of corruption. That people were believing that you had to pay the Brahmin priest in order to pray on your behalf and do some kind of ceremony. And then you would go home and your life would get better when they did a ceremony for you. And maybe today it was $5 for them to do that ceremony. And then maybe tomorrow it was $10 and you might ask why? Well, because the Brahmin said so, and these people were convinced that that's what they had to do in order to get a good life. So it bred a lot of corruption. And the Buddha saw this, and he knew that it wasn't true, because it's based on your own decisions, what leads to an improved life. It's not based on prayer, or worship, or rites, or rituals, or somebody sprinkling water. So he actually says in his own words, in his discourses, he specifically talks about sprinkling water around, and that that isn't Something that's going to produce any benefit. And he encourages and guides his practitioners not to do this. And you can see it in the words of the Buddha, but the challenge is that nowadays, not very many people are studying with the words of the Buddha. Even Buddhist monks, you know, you would think that every single temple would have the words of the Buddha, every single monk would be highly invested and interested and diligent and dedicated in learning the teachings of the buddha through his own words but that would be permanence and that just doesn't exist so what we have is we have this huge enormous group of people all over the world that are saying that you know they're practicing the buddhist teachings but yet they're not studying the actual suttas which are the original discourses of the buddha including ordained practitioners so you can actually go to temples that are doing rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship. So the very people during the lifetime of the Buddha, the Brahmin priests who were doing these things, that the Buddha guided people not to do, his own monks have actually now become the Brahmin priests. That the monks are actually collecting money from household practitioners to be able to perform sprinkling water, tying things on wrist doing mystical magical things doing fortune telling tattooing all the things that the buddha asked for the ordained practitioners not to do because it leads people's minds into wrong view and if the monks are practicing wrong view then it's going to be very challenging for the household practitioners to see the path to enlightenment very clearly and for all beings to get to enlightenment so it's very important as you practice, that you go into various centers and various temples. If you see these things going on, you just know that it's not part of the Buddhist teachings and that if you observe this, you just know that that's not part of your practice. What other people choose to do is up to them. In fact, I've talked with a few ordained practitioners and I've discussed with them about this topic. And Some of them actually know that sprinkling this water is not actually part of the Buddhist teachings. And I asked them, well, why do you do it then? And they said, well, the people are asking for it. And since the people ask for it, we give it to them. So if I was in that situation and I was an ordained practitioner and somebody asked me to sprinkle water on them, I would take the time, effort, energy and effort to be able to explain to them how this isn't part of the Buddhist teachings and help them understand what actually leads to enlightenment and sprinkling this water isn't going to do that for them. But that takes a lot more time, effort, energy, and dedication to be able to do that. For some people, if they're complacent, it's much easier to just get out the water and sprinkle it on them. And that's what we're seeing in a lot of places of the world that this complacency is set in. And there's people who are collecting money off of sprinkling this water on people. And that's what they choose to do. So when we choose to understand that what we're doing in this time and place is directly affecting on the condition of our own mind and what we choose to do in this time and place is going to affect future generations, then people can choose to clean up their practice for themselves and clean it up for future generations. That if we would like to restore these teachings back into the world so that they can really shine and more and more people can understand what it takes to get to enlightenment, then we might choose to do what requires more time, effort, energy and dedication which is explain to people that these things aren't part of the path to enlightenment and this can then help share the true wisdom of the Buddha so that more and more people understanding that wisdom can then experience the benefits of enlightenment. But as long as we continue to do these things then people aren't going to be able to understand the true path and actually experience enlightenment. So let me see what questions you guys have on this particular chapter.
4: I had a question, sir. If I could.
1: Sure, go ahead.
4: Um, so you uh, you discussed about like the Buddha didn't want the priest to to give tattoos or whatnot. I guess what's I, I'm just curious what would be the teachings on like tattoos. I guess It you're someone that would get maybe a tattoo would have more an obsession or clinging to the self? Is that the idea?
1: It's not that the Buddha was teaching nobody to get tattoos. He was teaching his ordained practitioners not to give tattoos. And the reason why is that an ordained practitioner is receiving the benefit of being in this womb that is created by the household practitioners. This womb, like the womb of a woman, it's an opportunity for a fetus to grow and mature and become a full human being, right? Well, the womb, the way that I describe the temple and the monastery and ordaining as a ordained practitioner, it's like a womb that the household practitioners are contributing their time, effort, energy, and resources to create this womb for the ordained practitioners to now let go of household life they no longer need to work they no longer need to have a house they no longer need to have all these possessions they can enter into this womb in order to grow and mature and that womb is provided by the household practitioners through their time effort energy and resources now if somebody were to enter this womb and be getting free food free water free clothing free place to stay essentially free medical care as well but yet they're dedicating their time and effort towards tattooing, then they're learning this skill that is not benefiting the household practitioners. Because what the real goal of an ordained practitioner should be is for them themselves to cultivate wisdom, get as close to enlightenment as possible, if not enlightened, and then be able to share those teachings with household practitioners. This is the mutual support that the Buddha created, that the household practitioners are providing this time effort energy and resources to create this womb there are certain individuals that are coming into this womb being able to benefit from that getting as close to enlightenment as possible if not enlightened and then as part of the exchange for having been able to receive this benefit of offerings that they didn't have to work, which allowed them all the time and energy to get to enlightenment as possible. Now what they reciprocate back to the household practitioners for this benefit that they received is they give them the teachings to be able to help them. So if that ordained practitioner is spending time dedicated to tattooing, then they're learning and practicing and doing all this work to do things that don't involve getting to enlightenment. And then when somebody does get a tattoo, This is reinforcing personal existence view, that first fetter that the Buddha taught to eliminate, is that by tattooing, it's not that you've done anything wrong or anything bad, but there is a certain amount of personal existence view that's still in the mind at that point in time where... The mind is trying to decorate the body because the mind thinks that this body is who you are as a person. And now the mind wants to be perceived in a self image in a certain way. So, if household practitioners choose to learn tattooing and they make that their craft and that's what they choose to do, and then people come and get tattoos, you know, so be it. You know, that's their own personal choice. But when somebody's getting the benefit of, the household practitioners providing this womb, and then they take advantage of this free food, water, clothing, shelter, medical care, and then actually direct themselves to learning something else, this is problematic because now the household practitioners aren't getting the teachings back. So let's just flip this on its head and say, let's say an ordained practitioner becomes ordained and then they learn how to become an auto mechanic and learn how to fix a car. And now they're working on the side in order to fix cars and and change tires and repair engines and pistons and all these different things. It's actually the same exact problem to a certain degree because they're taking advantage of the free food, water, clothing, shelter, medical care, but yet they're directing their time and effort into learning how to maintain cars and fix cars, and then they're doing this kind of side thing, which the Buddha wasn't interested in that occurring because it's like taking advantage of the household practitioners and the offerings that they're making. So he was interested in keeping the ordained practitioners dedicated and focused on learning and practicing and then sharing those teachings with the household practitioners for their benefit. This is the mutual support that occurs. I understand. Thank you, sir. You're welcome.
2: Uh, Yes, Chrissy has her hand raised. Let's go to her
3: for the question, sir. I just want to make sure I'm understanding your answer to Max's question. Um, it would be a problem if this monk were doing it and accepting money for their services, right? But if they were doing it, and not accepting money, like the auto mechanic, for example, and doing this, um just out of generosity and loving kindness would it still then be a wrong practice
1: sir if an ordained practitioner is dedicating significant portions of their time to learn or develop or maintain a certain craft and then do that on the side whether it's for money or not for money it's still taking them away from their core Practice, which should be to learn and develop their mind and then share those teachings with household practitioners. That's what their sole purpose should be. So, if an ordained practitioner happened to be an auto mechanic in the past, they became ordained and then they happened to be out in the countryside and one time out of five years they happened to see somebody broke down on the side of the road and they tinkered with a couple things in order to help that person move on, you know, that's one thing. But if they're actively maintaining this skill and continuously working on cars, for example, in this example, then this is taking them away from their core central goal, which should be if they've chosen to ordain it should be to learn and practice the teachings to train their own mind and then share those teachings with others to benefit them. So it's not about whether they're collecting money for it or not. It's more about the time, effort, energy, and resources that they're using should be directed towards developing their own mind and helping household practitioners to develop their mind.
3: Okay,
1: I
2: understand. Thank you, sir. Mm-hmm. It doesn't appear there are any other questions at this time, sir
1: okay so chapter 44
2: yes let's go to chrissy read chapter 44 please
3: okay misunderstandings regarding the benefits of reciting teachings the unreliable literature states that the parita or chants, have the power to protect those who recite it like in the story of the bodhisattva's life as a golden peacock, he often recited Mora Parita chants, which is about worshiping the various glories of past Buddhas, causing him to be safe from hunters. In addition, The unreliable literature shares that during the lifetime of the Buddha, 500 monks went to the forest to practice meditation. They were harassed by the deities and were unable to meditate. So they returned to Savati. So the Buddha advised them to recite the text of loving kindness and to radiate the spirit of love to all sentient beings. Upon returning to the forest, the monks practiced the radiation of love. The deities were pleased and thus let the monks meditate peacefully. Another newly unreliable literature shares that the power of parita or chance can help protect those who listen to parita. During the lifetime of the Buddha, Vasali was plagued by three dangerous dangers of famine, devils, and pestilence. The Veselins sought to help the Buddha. The Buddha instructed Venerable Ananda to recite the discourse on precious jewels. Then all the dangers were terminated. Furthermore, in another unreliable literature, it was composed that during the lifetime of the Buddha, there was a child who was going to be eaten by a yakka within seven days. The Buddha then advised monks to recite the parita, or chants, for seven nights, and the Buddha himself recited on the eighth night. The child was released from the danger of the non-human.
1: All right, thank you, Chrissy. So here, this is tracking back a misunderstanding about chanting, that this particular unreliable source is reporting that Chanting has this mystical, magical benefit, essentially. And the Buddha never actually taught this. During his lifetime, he used chanting as a way to help his students to be able to remember the teachings. Every two weeks, the students would come together and they would chant his discourses. And this helped them to refine their memory and actually remember his discourses. And it worked because after he died, they actually wrote them down. And now we have them preserved. But there are certain people who believe that just chanting these words is somehow gonna perform this mystical, magical protection. But what the Buddha taught is what protects you is training your mind because then the decisions that you make are going to be wise it's your own wise decision making that protects you there's no right ritual ceremony or worship that can protect you if that was the case then people would have found this out and discovered this long long ago and everybody in the world would already know it if you could recite some words and then that was going to have this ultimate protection of you and now you can walk through fires you know if a a thousand tons fell on you, you'd be safe or any number of other things. We would already know that. The whole world would have discovered that already by now. But what helps you and what protects you in life is your wisdom. By you training your mind and cultivating wisdom and making wise decisions, that's what protects you. When we get into our car, if we're single-minded and we drive nicely down the street and we let people in sometimes and we drive uh, nicely and we don't race around with a bunch of craving then we're going to have a safe comfortable drive in the car but if we're you know not that way if our mind is distracted if we're racing around town if we're going through red lights and we're blowing through stop signs we're cutting people off and so forth then we're going to have difficulties in our life as we drive through the streets we're going to be more likely to get in accidents and things like this so what helps us to be safe when we drive and through other things in the world is our decisions It's our decisions that we make that actually create protection for us in our life. And the way that we make wise decisions is cultivating wisdom. And when we cultivate wisdom, then we have the wisdom that it takes to train our mind, eliminating craving, anger, and ignorance. And now through those wise decisions, that's what actually provides the protection, not chance or any kind of mystical, magical things. What questions do you guys have on this chapter?
2: Um, Yes, sir. Others have said that listening to chanting makes them feel calm or peaceful. Is this an arisen feeling based on the condition of contact through the sense space of the ears? Is that all that this is, sir?
1: Exactly. And you know, if we use a little bit of that stuff occasionally, then it's okay because it helps the mind become more calm. But what you would like to do is train the mind more and more to be able to do that on its own that if we rely on the chanting or rely on music or something like this in order to bring the mind to a calm state, then the mind hasn't figured out and gained the wisdom of how to do that by itself. So what you're doing on the path to enlightenment is training the mind to learn how to do that itself. So if somebody is feeling stressed or anxious, then we know that's craving, desire, attachment. And if you play music and you feel calm, well, now the mind is just attached to the music or to the chanting. So what you would like to do is you'd like to identify the craving that's causing the stress and the anxiety, eliminate that. So then the mind can naturally be calm. And that's going to require a certain amount of meditation, a certain amount of practice of generosity, and developing the skill to identify our attachments and learning how to eliminate them. That's what's going to bring calmness and composure to the mind. Ultimately, the chanting and any calmness that someone gets through hearing chanting is only temporary because it's a condition.
2: Yes, thank you, sir.
1: Mm-hmm. You're welcome.
2: I see that Tonka has her hand raised. Let's go to her for a question.
5: I think it's a very similar question. I was wondering because. Um, We mentioned several times that chanting helps with uh, mindfulness, concentration, and memory, that uh, it's very helpful, and that's why we do it. Um, So I was wondering in what way exactly, if it's not sound, if it's not the words that are being said, like what are the mechanics, where is the benefit of chanting coming from?
1: Yeah, what you're doing there is you're arising those qualities of mindfulness and you're arising the qualities of concentration when you're doing the chanting. So it's not the chants themselves, it's not the words themselves, but it's exercising the mind. So if you have this piece of paper that has chants on it and you need to gradually learn it and memorize it, you're actually exercising the mind to have a better memory. And then when you're actually chanting, you're needing to become aware of the mind as you're chanting and having concentration and focusing on the breath, which then eases Mm -hmm. the mind into meditation and gets better benefits out of meditation. So the mechanics are that you're actually exercising the mind to arise the mindfulness and concentration and memory. And then, because you've exercised the mind, you can use those qualities in your Mm -hmm. daily life.
5: Can the prayer do the same for some people that are more familiar with uh, Christianity and uh, like Western people? For example, myself, uh, uh, chanting is very... You know, I just uh, grew up in a very different environment. So would a prayer that is not uh, a prayer, uh, uh, you know, like, God, give me this, give me that. But certain prayers I find very beautiful. Could they invoke uh, the the similar uh, benefits in us?
1: Yeah, if you're exercising the mind to be able to remember the prayers, you know, that's helping you with memory. Also, when you're praying, if you're... Uh, developing concentration around that. And some of these prayers, like I do the Lord's Prayer myself, if you understand the meaning behind it and the affirmations that you're making as part of it, like you said, not asking for some benefit, but instead you're using it to exercise the mind, maybe arise dedication, arise diligence in the mind, this dedication to your practice, this can be very beneficial for you. But there's nothing that in this case, you know, through prayer that God's going to Mm -hmm. kind of zap you and create some kind of benefit for you. But it's all about what you're cultivating in your own mind. Thank you. Mm -hmm. You're welcome.
2: does not appear that there are any other questions at this time, sir.
1: All right. So we go to chapter 45.
2: Yes, sir. I'll read chapter 45. Reside with the teachings as your refuge. But I have But have I not already declared, Ananda, that we must be parted, separated and severed from all who are dear and agreeable to us? How, Ananda, is it to be obtained here? May what is born come to be, conditioned and subject to disintegration, not disintegrate. That is impossible. Therefore, Ananda, reside with yourselves as your own island, with yourselves as your own refuge, with no other refuge reside with the teachings as your island, with the teachings as your refuge with no other refuge. And how, Ananda, does a monk reside with himself as his own island, with himself as his own refuge, with no other refuge, with the teachings as his island, with the teachings as his refuge, with no other refuge? Here, Ananda, a monk resides reflecting on the body in the body. He resides reflecting on feelings in feelings. He resides reflecting on mind and mind. He resides reflecting on mental objects and mental objects, dedicated, clearly comprehending, mindful, having removed craving and displeasure in regard to the world. Those monks, Ananda, either now or after I am gone, who reside with themselves as their own island, with themselves as their own refuge, with no other refuge, who reside with the teachings as their island with the teachings as their refuge, with no other refuge. It is these monks, Ananda, who will be, for me, greatest of those dedicated to the training.
1: All right. Thank you, Miranda. This is a very interesting teaching because it's oftentimes uh, misunderstood. The part here at the middle where it's talking about residing with yourself as your own island with your own yourself as your own refuge oftentimes this is the only part of the discourse that people actually have and they think what the buddha is saying here is that you can get to enlightenment by yourself but if you understand that that's actually only possible for a buddha and that that's very rare for someone to be able to do that and that existence of a buddha is very rare in the world then you would know that this isn't what the Buddha was explaining. Or if you have the full discourse like we have here, essentially, then you can see that what the Buddha is actually talking about when he's talking about residing with yourself as your own island, your own refuge, no other refuge. What he's explaining here is he's explaining to practice The four foundations of mindfulness. That's what he's referring to. That essentially, what he's saying is nobody else is going to eliminate these attachments for you. Nobody else is going to identify your attachments and have the ability to actually eliminate them. Instead, you need to practice the four foundations of mindfulness, being aware of those bodily sensations the feelings, the condition of the mind, and the mental objects. And when you're aware of these and you have mindfulness of these, now when you're aware of those bodily sensations arising, you can cut off and let go of the discontentedness that's occurring there. And then eventually you get to the point where you've done that so frequently that there is no craving, desire, attachments in the mind and no discontentedness will arise. Nobody else can do this work for you a teacher can guide you in understanding these things a teacher can guide you in understanding the four noble truths and the eightfold path and how to uh, train in meditation and particularly these four foundations of mindfulness and so forth but each individual student Has to become aware of these four foundations of mindfulness and all the other teachings and they need to be able to do the work themselves the teacher can be highly dedicated to helping their students but the students have to choose to bring the teachings into their life and actually do the work so what the buddha is talking about here in terms of residing with yourself as your own island is that only you can do this work but you're going to need a teacher in order to guide you an individual wouldn't be able to get to enlightenment without a teacher. So this is a common teaching that people misunderstand because they're only actually learning this middle part. If the Buddha was teaching that you didn't need a teacher in order to get to enlightenment and that everybody can get to enlightenment by themselves, then when he would have woken from enlightenment, he would have said, well, I did it by myself. You can too. I'm going back to the palace. I'll see you later. Everybody get to enlightenment on your own. He wouldn't have spent 45 years of sharing teachings to help lead and guide countless people to enlightenment. He would have no need to do that if everybody else could get to enlightenment on their own but because of the ego because of this independence and everybody thinking that you know they can pull up a youtube video or a podcast and this is all they need in order to get to enlightenment or they can read a book and get to enlightenment they think it's that easy and that straightforward and then they might pull a little piece of a discourse like this and it kind of reinforces their wrong view that they can get to enlightenment by themselves. But this actually is impossible. It is your own independent practice. That's what the Buddha is explaining. This is your own independent practice. You're the one who has to do the work, but you'll need to have guidance from a teacher in order to do that. And particularly he's guiding people to develop the four foundations of mindfulness because once somebody's able to observe the bodily sensations and cut off the discontentedness there, this individual is close to enlightenment because they've developed their mind to such a point that they can observe the bodily sensations that are coming as discontentedness is arising And they've developed their mind to such a point that when they observe those bodily sensations, they can cut off discontentedness there and not allow it to become feelings in the mind. This individual is very near to enlightenment is what the Buddha is explaining. It doesn't mean it's going to happen tomorrow or next month, but within the next year or two or so, an individual that has been able to observe the bodily sensations and sees that every single time any pleasant feelings, painful feelings, or feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant is arising, and they're able to cut it off and let it go, this person within the next year or two or so will end up getting to enlightenment. And that's what the Buddha shares as part of his teachings, that you're independently doing the work, but you'll need guidance to be able to help you understand how to do that work, but you do the work on your own. What questions do you guys have on this chapter?
3: It does not appear there
2: are any questions at this time, sir.
1: All right. So now we go to chapter forty-six.
2: Yes, sir. Let's go to Max to read chapter forty-six,
4: please.
1: Chapter forty-six:
4: Four criteria that assure the words of the Buddha. Suppose a monk were to say, "Friends, I hear. I heard the. I heard and received this from the perfectly enlightened one's own lips. These are the teachings." this is the discipline this is the master master's teaching then monks you should neither approve nor disapprove his words then without approving or disapproving his words and expressions should be carefully noted and compared with the suttas and reviewed in the light of the discipline if they on such comparison and review are found not to conform to the suttas or the discipline the conclusion must be assuredly, this is not the word of the Buddha. It has been wrongly understood by this monk, and the matter is to be rejected. But where on such comparison and review, they are found to conform to the suttas or the discipline, the conclusion must be assuredly, this is the word of the Buddha, it has been rightly understood by this monk. Suppose a monk were to say in such in such place there is a community with elders and distinguished teachers. I have heard and received this from the, that community. Then monks, you should neither prove nor disapprove his words. Suppose a monk were to say in such and such a place. There are many elders who are learned bearers of the tradition who know the teachings, the discipline, the training guidance. Suppose a monk were to say in such and such a place there is one elder who has learned. I have heard and received this from, the el- from that elder. But where on such comparison and review they are found to conform to the suttas and the discipline, then the conclusion must be assuredly, this is the word of the Buddha. It has been rightly understood by this monk.
1: All right, thank you, Max. So as we were talking before, it's the words of the Buddha that is explaining how to get to enlightenment and what the path to enlightenment is. Anytime something is different or has been changed, that's just diluting the path and it's making it more and more difficult for others to get to enlightenment. So the Buddha knew that people were going to misunderstand his teachings and falsely represent what it is that he was teaching. So what he shared is that if anybody speaks something that says that this is the words of the Buddha don't just believe it, that instead consult his discourses and look at what he actually taught. And if it is opposite of what he taught, then essentially you can ignore it and consider that this person has misunderstood his teachings. But upon comparison, if somebody teaches something and shares something related to the words of the Buddha, and then you compare it and it actually matches to what he taught, then you can be sure that this person understands the teachings of the Buddha and then that's how you'll have confidence that these teachings that you're learning are actually the words of the Buddha. And you shouldn't be interested in necessarily learning anything other than what the Buddha actually taught, because if you're learning all these other disparate things and mixing it and matching it into what you're learning with the words of the Buddha, it's just going to confuse the mind. So typically what you do is you try to stay focused on a set of resources and work to learn those, independently verify them through your reflection, and then practice. And as you practice the teachings and you see the condition of the mind improving, that's how you know you're learning the truth. And you can be assured that you're not misunderstanding his teachings and you're not being misled. So going back to some of the misunderstandings that we were talking about earlier, like sprinkling the water or pouring the water to, to transfer merit and so forth like this, and the chance too, right? You can actually test these things. If sprinkling water on you is somehow gonna miraculously help you, then if you're angry or you're frustrated, or you have some problem, you should be able to go to a monk, get some water sprinkled on you. Did it help you? Did it transform your anger? Did it give you more wisdom? And the answer is no. So there you can test these things for yourself through direct experience and see the truth. So even when you're learning the words of the Buddha, you shouldn't actually believe what you're learning. That's one of the reasons why I encourage students to do independent verification. That's also why we have the references at the end of each one of these chapters so that you don't even need to believe the books that I'm providing you that if you read something, you're like, hmm, that doesn't quite sound right. You can take that reference. You can go back to the original source and see whether what David's sharing with you in these books is accurate or not. And there you can build your confidence slowly but surely that there's been a lot of time, attention, and detail put into putting together these teachings and providing them to you in a way that they are accurate. But now with the references and your own independent verification, you can confirm and build confidence for yourself that these things are the truth and these are the words of the Buddha and then through your practice and you see the condition of the mind improving and you see that things where you once struggled in your relationships before those things are becoming a bit easier in certain situations then you can also be sure that what you're learning and practicing is the truth because you see the improvements in your own mind and you see it in the relationships that you're having as well what questions do you guys have on this chapter
2: yes sir you actually answered uh, a couple different ways, um, the question that I have, but the one part that I think hasn't been touched on yet, not everyone might be aware of where they can actually read out of the polycanon. Um, could you maybe give direction on that, sir?
1: Sure. So- the best place I think that if you were looking to reference a source for the polycanon outside of the resources that I provide is probably suttacentral.com. But even those translations, they're not going to be exactly the translations that I use because I've updated the word choices in a lot of cases. So where those translations might be using the word suffering a lot or for the five aggregates or for the six sense bases and things like this, they're using a lot of different words because there's different translators. So sometimes in these different resources, because the polycanon is so comprehensive, there might be four to six different translators for any one set of sources. The source that I provide, it reads from one author. But if you reference to another source you're going to see that they use different words in some cases but it's the same teaching it's just using different words like suffering and different words for the five aggregates or the six sense bases and so forth so you might use those other resources to confirm that ah yes david's teachings and what he's sharing is the source is the same but now let me learn from the resources that David provides because they read as one author. Because if you are learning from four to six different translators, it can confuse the mind having to keep straight what one translator is using versus what another translator is using. And I've kind of normalized all of that through presenting one set of teachings that has the same terms all the way throughout the whole comprehensive set of collections. So what you can do is you can use this reference here. This DN16 is going to take you to a certain spot in the Pali Canon. You can actually take that and you can Google it. Um, Sometimes you need to put that plus Buddhism at the end of it, and it will pull up multiple sources for this this Sutta in the Pali Canon. So you might see many different translators. But I encourage students to use the translations that I share because... They're normalized with one set of vocabulary that will help you across all discourses to understand what it is that the buddha was explaining
2: yes thank you sir mm-hmm. it does not appear that there are any other questions at this time
1: all right so we'll go to chapter 47
2: yes sir let's go to chrissy to read chapter 47 please
3: the supreme honor and respect ananda Prepare me a bed between these twill salt trees with my head to the north. I am sleepy and would like to lie down. Ananda, these salt trees have burst forth into abundance of untimely blossoms, which fell upon the tahagata's body, sprinkling it and covering it in homage, respect. Divine coral tree flowers fell from the sky. Divine sandalwood powder fell from the sky, sprinkling and covering the tahagata's body in homage. Respect. Divine music and song sound from the sky in homage. Respect to the tahagata. Never before has the tahagata been so honored respected, appreciated, admired, and adored. And yet, Ananda, whatever male or female ordained practitioner, male or female household practitioner resides practicing the teachings properly and perfectly fulfills the ways of the teachings, he or she honors the Tathagata, has deep respect and appreciates him and pays him the supreme homage, respect. Therefore, Ananda, we will reside practicing the teachings properly and perfectly. Fulfill the way of the teachings. This must be your goal and objective.
1: All right. Thank you, Chrissy. So here, Ananda is one of the Buddha's closest students. He was with the Buddha for pretty much his entire teaching career. And he's reported to be most likely the cousin of the Buddha. So he was a family member as part of the royal family. So Ananda was with the Buddha quite a bit throughout his life. And here the Buddha is getting sleepy, so he asked Ananda to prepare him a bed. And a Buddha will typically sleep with their head uh, towards the north and their feet towards the south. And they you will usually sleep on their right side, essentially facing towards the west. And as this is occurring, and the Buddha is laying down, there's this miracle essentially that is produced, this great respect and, and admiration and, uh, for the Buddha. And the Buddha saying, even with this great respect and admiration, this miracle that is being performed, the Buddha says the way to truly respect him as a teacher is to learn and practice his teachings. That's what is the most supreme respect that you could give to a Buddha. Because a Buddha is essentially on a mission for the rest of their life. That they've done all this deep, deep, intensive work on their own mind over a period of years, and it took them many, many lives to be able to get to the point where they could attain enlightenment on their own. They've done a tremendous amount of work over multiple lives. And now, once they get to enlightenment, they dedicate the whole rest of their life to sharing those teachings with others, and they know that it's up to them to bring the teachings into the world in such a way that others can benefit from it. They've done all this work and their mind is so utterly peaceful and so utterly joyful and the only thing that they're focused on for the rest of their life is how to bring their teachings into the world in more and more penetrating ways so that countless beings can get to enlightenment and essentially they're fulfilling this mission of being able to share their teachings in the world so any student who chooses to dedicate their time and become diligent in learning and practicing for they themselves to get to enlightenment they're helping themselves to get to enlightenment but they're also helping that buddha because the buddha needs to be able to bring the teachings into the world and help countless people get to enlightenment that's the way their teachings get preserved because when people dedicate their time and energy to be diligent in learning and practicing and they see the condition of their mind improving and getting to enlightenment That individual, that student, will know that they've absolutely gotten to enlightenment. And it was this set of teachings that actually helped them to get there. And then if that person chooses, they might choose to teach. But even if they don't choose to teach, they just help their children or they help the people around them here and there. It's going to benefit the world, having an enlightened being in the world. Even just one enlightened being can be very helpful for a community and for people that are around that enlightened being. So a Buddha is going to put forth an enormous amount of dedication to bring their teachings into the world, to help countless people out of compassion for all beings. Compassion is the concern for the misfortune of others. So an individual who chooses to learn and practice these teachings, this is the highest amount of respect that you could ever give to your teacher because you're essentially helping them through just you learning and practicing the that's already helpful enough because it's helping you and it's helping all those people around you and it helps all of humanity because it allows the teachings to come into the world. That's how the teachings come into the world and shine brightly is by individual students choosing to learn and practice them. And the Buddha here is encouraging Ananda to be sure to practice them perfectly and be sure that that's his objective and his goal to ensure that the teachings come into the world and they shine brightly and that would be the goal of any particular Buddha that might be interested to share their teachings that's their mission an enlightened being might be a teacher not all enlightened beings are going to be a teacher but an enlightened being will be able to help Several people to get to enlightenment, but they're just not going to have the same level of wisdom as an actual Buddha. So during the lifetime of a Buddha, they're trying to ensure that countless people can get to enlightenment during their lifetime so that this brings the teachings into the world in such a way that after their death, countless more people can get to enlightenment. And they're doing this without craving, desire, attachment. They're not longing and yearning for this to occur. They already have eliminated all their cravings. They know that they've discovered the teachings that lead to enlightenment, and now they just gradually move forward. And because they know that they've accomplished the goal of improving the condition of their own mind to get to enlightenment, and because they know that they've discovered Uh, the teachings that lead to enlightenment, it's only a matter of time if they consistently share their teachings over the years, that it's only a matter of time before more and more and more and more people learn them and practice them. And this accumulates into countless people having got to enlightenment and their teachings are now shining in the world. What questions do you guys have on this chapter?
2: Uh, Yes, sir. Chrissy has her hand raised. Let's go to her for a question, sir. Yes.
3: Um, So the last part of that reading um, the practicing the teachings properly and perfectly Um, as an unenlightened being, it erases a bit of not well, maybe a bit of discontent, like, because is it still a way to honor and respect the Buddha when you're unable to practice properly and perfectly. While you're still learning, you're unable to be perfect.
1: Right. So, so just the dedication and the diligence to become enlightened, that's still respectful, right? If somebody's choosing to learn and practice, they're not going to be perfect as long as the mind is unenlightened. They're not going to be practicing the teachings perfectly and properly. But that aspiration to continue to do that is which is showing one's respect because a Buddha isn't going to expect their students to be perfect because they know that their students have pollution of mind and it's going to take gradual training, gradual practice and gradual progress. But ultimately, as they aspire to become more and more enlightened and they practice the teachings properly, that's what's going to lead to their enlightenment. And that is being respectful as well, that they're Uh, having this goal this objective this aspiration to gradually move towards enlightenment but it's going to take some people a few years it's going to take some people 10 or 20 years to get to enlightenment this student that he's actually talking to ananda he actually didn't get to enlightenment during the lifetime of the buddha he didn't get to enlightenment until after the buddha died and he lived with the buddha essentially side by side for 45 years but from the reading of the Pali Canon it seems like he was attached to the Buddha because when the Buddha was telling everybody including Ananda that he was about to die Ananda was pleading with him like please don't die please don't die you know so it was obvious that Ananda was attached to the Buddha and it wasn't until the Buddha died about three months later that Ananda actually got to enlightenment so even this individual who the Buddha is talking to he wasn't practicing the teachings perfectly during the lifetime of the Buddha. But the Buddha also told him during his life, you will get to enlightenment during this lifetime. But it was just after the Buddha died. So yes, Chrissy, a student who's learning and being diligent and dedicated, they're still being respectful to practice the teachings. The Buddha is essentially saying here in this discourse, you know, he doesn't need all these miracles. He doesn't need all this admiration with all this miracles what he's really interested in is having students to learn and practice his teachings that's what he's basically saying thank you sir mm-hmm. you're welcome
2: it does not appear that there are any other questions at this time sir
1: okay chapter 48
2: yes uh let's go to tonka to read chapter 48 please thank you miranda Teachings and discipline will be your
5: teacher. Ananda, it may be that you will think the teacher's instruction has ceased. Now we have no teacher. It should not be seen like this, Ananda. For what I have taught and explained to you as teachings and discipline will at my passing be your teacher. Now monks, I declare to you, all conditioned things are uh, of a nature of decay. Strive on untiringly.
1: All right, thank you, Tonka. So these were among the Buddha's last words because He let people know three months before he was going to die, that he was going to die. This is how enlightened he is, that he knew exactly when he was going to die. And he gave people a three-month heads up. And then he actually knew the exact moment he was going to die, and he delivered this very last teaching. That's what a Buddha does, that from the time that they awake from enlightenment until the time that they die, pretty much what they're talking about, what they're discussing, it's all about... The path to enlightenment ensuring that they deliver the teachings that lead to enlightenment and now as he's getting ready to die ananda might think that there is no more teacher right because the buddha is dead and the Buddha's saying they shouldn't be seen that way because essentially i've shared all the teachings that you need in order to get to enlightenment and upon my death these teachings that i've shared with you let that be your teacher that that is the teacher for you and then he delivers a teaching about the universal truth of impermanence, essentially saying that all conditioned things are in nature of decay. This is describing the universal truth of impermanence. That's the very first step to the path to enlightenment. And his last words are essentially the very first step to understanding the path to enlightenment, which is an individual would need to understand the universal truth of impermanence to just even start any kind of progress on the path to enlightenment. So his very last teaching is the very first thing that needs to be understood as part of your journey to enlightenment. And then he explains to people to essentially remain diligent, remain dedicated, strive on untiringly, because there's going to be challenges and struggles along the way on this path. And, you know, as much as we like to think about the path to enlightenment as being very joyful and very pleasant and getting to this peaceful and joyful mind, it's a struggle it's a challenge to let go of these things that the mind's been holding on to and then even when you're facing people in your life that are maybe uh, hateful and not really understanding what it is that you're doing this can really put you to the test are you really interested in getting to enlightenment or are you interested in holding on to certain unwholesome things Are you really interested in getting to enlightenment or are you going to allow the words of other people to dissuade you and knock you down and diminish you because that's what we've experienced all throughout our life people may be perhaps trying to knock us down at different times and as long as we believed those things then we might have gotten sorrowful and we might have felt down in the dumps but now it's about rising above that and not allowing these words and these actions of other people to affect you in a negative way and rising above that Not allowing these unwholesome things that the mind is holding on to, to weigh us down. So the Buddha is saying, remain dedicated, remain diligent. Essentially, strive on untiringly. When you're tired and you feel like you need to take a break from the struggles and challenges that you're facing, okay, take a break, rest for a day or two, but still strive on. Don't allow that to become a week or two or a month or two or a year or two that you're not practicing these teachings uh, you know you can step back and just kind of look at things and implement the things that you've learned and then move forward again but don't allow that to breed complacency in the mind because if the mind becomes complacent that's very detrimental so the buddha is saying strive on untiringly essentially don't allow the mind to become complacent what questions do you guys have on this chapter
2: it doesn't appear that there are any other, any questions at this time sir
1: okay So now we're going into this next section that's titled, How to Make Apologies for Those Who Have Wrong View. And chapter 49 is for Ordained Practitioners. Uh,
2: Yes, sir. I'll be reading chapter 49. Ordained Practitioners. The perfectly enlightened one and the male ordained community were honored, respected, admired, venerated, and appreciated. And they obtained robes, alms, food, lodging, and medicinal supplies. But the wanderers of other communities were not. There was a wanderer named Susima who was advised by his company to lead the holy life under the ascetic Potama to master the teachings and share the teachings with household practitioners. In hope that they too will be honored, respected, and admired. Upon receiving ordination, the wanderer Susima asked the venerable ones if they wield various kinds of spiritual power, but was told that it is not necessary to obtain spiritual power to attain nibbana or enlightenment. The wanderer Susima then went to the perfectly enlightened one and reported to him a conversation he had had with the monks. Then the perfectly enlightened one shared the teachings, and the wanderer Susima attained Nibbana. Then the venerable Susima prostrated himself with his head at perfectly enlightened one's feet and said, Venerable Sir, I have committed a wrongdoing in that I was so unwise, so confused, so unskillful, that I went forth as a thief of the teachings in such a well-expounded teachings and discipline as this. Venerable Sir, May the perfectly enlightened one pardon me for my wrongdoing seen as a wrongdoing for the sake of future restraint. Surely, Susima, you have done a wrongdoing in that you were so unwise, so confused, so unskillful that you went forth as a thief of the teachings in such a well expounded teachings and discipline as this. Suppose, Susima, they were to arrest a bandit, a criminal, and bring him before the king saying, sir, This man is a bandit, criminal. Impose on him whatever punishment you wish. The king would say to them, Come, men, bind this man's arms tightly behind his back with a strong rope. Shave his head and lead him around from street to street and from square to square, beating a drum. Then take him out through the southern gate and to the south of the city. Cut off his head. What do you think, Susima? Would that man experience pain and displeasure on that account? Yes, venerable sir. Although that man would experience pain and displeasure on that account, going forth as a thief of the teachings in such a well-expounded teachings and discipline as this, has results that are far more painful, far more bitter, and further, it leads to the netherworld. But since you see your wrongdoing as a wrongdoing and make apologies for it in accordance with the teachings, we understand you. For it is growth in the noble one's discipline, when one sees one's wrongdoing as a wrongdoing, makes apologies for it in accordance with the teachings and undertakes future restraint.
1: Can I teach from here, Miranda, and then have you do the next one? Yes, sir. Okay. So here, this other person of another community, because remember, there were multiple communities during the lifetime of the Buddha, and each of these teachers were claiming that it was their teachings that lead to enlightenment. But the Buddha knew it was his teachings. So these other groups, these other communities were struggling to get the needed requirements in order to sustain their life like robes and alms food and lodging and medical supplies a lot of those offerings were coming into the buddha because more and more of the members of his community were sharing his teachings and the household practitioners were learning more and more that it was his teachings that lead to enlightenment so as the buddha taught more and more these other communities were struggling to be able to get the basic necessities to sustain their life So here's a story of an individual who was from one of these other communities and they thought that what they would do is ordain with the Buddha, learn the Buddha's teachings, and then essentially steal their teachings and go back to their other community and now share those teachings within their other community as a way of getting their food and clothing and shelter and other things like this. So this person had the intention of being a thief and stealing the teachings and the Buddha explains this individual who would maybe do something unwholesome and an individual I think it's a king yes that would do this you know harmful thing to this person and the Buddha saying you know had this individual actually stolen the Buddhist teachings and done what he had intended to do his pain and his displeasure and what he would experience would actually be more painful than this description of this person who's being essentially tortured the Buddha talks about stealing his teachings and claiming them for your own, that it leads to the nether world, meaning the lower realms. That during the lifetime of the Buddha, he explains this in other discourses too, about people who would learn his teachings and then try to steal them and say that, okay, these are my teachings. But those individuals wouldn't be able to teach the teachings as vibrantly as a Buddha. So where somebody might come I know we have max here i'll use welding right his occupation is welding like if somebody's a really good welder another person can come and learn how to do welding really well and then go start their own company and do welding right this is kind of not too difficult to do. I mean, welding is quite complicated, of course, and only people that are skilled in it would know how to do it. But with the right amount of time, effort, energy, and uh, resources, you could actually come close to another welder. You could learn that skill and then eventually go start your own company. But with something like the teachings of a Buddha that are being delivered by a Buddha, even if somebody tried to steal a Buddha's teachings and then go claim them as their own... They wouldn't be able to communicate them and have the success and the benefit that a buddha would actually have so while the buddha actually talked about people stealing his teachings during his lifetime he wasn't concerned about it at all he wasn't worried about it occurring because he knew that it was occurring and people were attempting to steal his teachings but they couldn't be successful with them as much as a fully, perfectly enlightened Buddha. It's just not possible for somebody to steal a Buddha's teachings and then go off into the world and actually be successful with them. So the Buddha is actually explaining that attempting to do that would lead to rebirth in the lower realm. But here the Buddha is saying, okay, since you see your wrongdoing, I understand you. And now you've made apologies for that. And you know, basically guiding the student and basically saying, no big deal, right? A Buddha's not going to hold a grudge. They're not going to get angry now that somebody's admitted that they've tried to steal their teachings. A Buddha's not going to get angry with that person because they don't have any anger anymore, right? They don't have any resentment. They don't feel any of those negative uh, mental qualities or mental states towards another individual. So even somebody who's trying to steal their teachings, a Buddha's like, ah, okay, well, you know. I understand. I understand you. You know, you've admitted your wrongdoing. You've made apologies. Done. It's over, right? That's the way a Buddha is going to function. And it's not possible for somebody to steal a Buddha's teachings and be as successful as an actual Buddha. A individual can't cultivate the level of wisdom that a Buddha actually has in their mind. It's impossible for them to get to that same degree of perfect enlightenment. Uh, Individual can get to enlightenment, and they can share those teachings. But that person that got to enlightenment and shares an actual Buddhist teachings is gonna have so much respect and admiration for that Buddha that they're not going to be interested in stealing the teachings and claiming that they're their own because an enlightened being is not gonna steal anything. So anybody who actually gets to enlightenment and can be fairly successful at sharing the teachings of the Buddha, they're gonna already have admiration and respect for that Buddha. They're not going to be stealing the teaching, so to speak. But even in that situation, that enlightened being who learned directly from a Buddha, they're still not going to be able to be as successful as an actual Buddha. Even learning the teachings within a Buddha's discipline and and community and getting to enlightenment, they would still be able to help many, many people, but they're still not going to be at the same level of success as an actual Buddha. So somebody who's maliciously stealing teachings like this surely isn't going to be able to get to The level of success because they're still stealing, right? They still have craving, anger, and ignorance in the mind. And as long as somebody has craving, anger, and ignorance in the mind, they can only be so successful at sharing the teachings because they don't yet know how to fully get to enlightenment yet. So what questions do you guys have on this portion of this chapter?
2: Uh, Yes, sir. Max has his hand raised. Let's go to him for his question.
4: Thank you, Miranda. Teacher David, I had a I guess uh, I wanted to understand the uh, having admiration and how that, I, I guess, how that pertains to like clinging or, or like when you admire someone. I guess I, in my mind, I consider that like you're holding them above you or something like that, how would you, I guess, explain admiring or having admiration without um, feeling that someone's above you?
1: Yeah, so you can admire certain qualities or certain things about people without considering them to be above you. If you're putting people above you, that means you're judging somebody and you're putting them above you. But for example, I admire Martin Luther King. I think his nonviolent movement had an enormous effect and benefits for countless people, not just people of color, but even other people too, because they learned things from Martin Luther King that they otherwise wouldn't have learned. So I admire him as an individual who benefited the world through what he offered to the world in terms of his guidance and his education i admire him but i don't consider him to be above me or below me either i just admire his dedication i admire his work i admire his diligence i admire his ability to speak and move people to a certain cause i admire his ability to gather up people that were interested in this cause but i don't consider him to be above me but I just admire the work that he's done and respect it, and another way to say that. So you can admire somebody and respect them without putting them above you. And this is what you would like to do, is that you can see certain qualities in people that you might admire. And this is one of the ways that you can see somebody who's even doing unwholesome things and admire it, right? So this is an example I use sometimes. Like if I saw a parent that was being harsh and aggressive with their child and maybe even beating their child, right? I disagree with their actions, but that's their choice. I disagree with their actions to perhaps beat their child, but I can admire their dedication, that they love this child so much that they would like to see them do good things, but they just don't have the wisdom of how to guide this child through their words and their actions, and they are now beating their child, for example. So I can admire somebody, even who's doing unwholesome things. I can see certain qualities of what they're trying to accomplish. They just might be going about it in an unwise way. And if you don't put yourself above and below people, you can admire various qualities about different people and then draw that into your own life that, wow, I would like to be a dedicated parent. I would like to be a diligent parent, but I would like to do that in a wise way.
4: Thank you, sir. I looked up, uh, like, basically just looked up the definition and it said something regarded as impressive or worthy of respect. So, yeah, I mean, just it's just a misbelief in my mind that admiring someone, they would be, like, above you or whatever. So that's just my misunderstanding. Thank you, sir.
1: Yeah, you're welcome. And that's common as long as we, you know, are on this path. Oftentimes when we think about admire, when we're not yet doing the investigation that you just did it's a common misunderstanding for somebody to think that way but now that you've done the investigation and you see the wisdom then you can learn how to admire people without putting them above you
2: yes it appears we have no other questions at this time sir
1: okay so now we go to the next one
2: monk's conduct when entering houses there are several ways of conduct for monks when entering houses, as appears in many discourses. In summary, they are how to eat, how to give thanks, and how to talk on the teachings, as examples shown in the following discourses. Then, it being morning, perfectly enlightened Kasapa, accomplished and fully enlightened, dressed and taking his bowl and outer robe, he went with the community of monks to the residence of King Kiki of Kasi, and sat down on the seat made ready for him. Then, with his own hands, King Kiki of Kasi served and satisfied the community of monks headed by the Buddha Kasapa with various kinds of good food. When the Buddha Kasapa, accomplished and fully enlightened, had eaten and put his bowl aside, King Kiki of Kasi took a low seat, sat down at one side, and said, Venerable sir, let the perfectly enlightened one accept from me a residence for the rains retreat. There will be such service to the community. Enough, king. My residence for the rains has been provided for. Then the perfectly enlightened one, rising up early and taking his bowl and robe, came up to the residence of the Brahman of Varanja. Having come up together with the company of monks, he sat down on the appointed seat, then the Brahman of Varanja, having served with his own hand abundant food, both hard and soft, to the company of monks with the perfectly enlightened one as their head, and having satisfied them, when the perfectly enlightened one had eaten and finished his meal, he clothed him with threefold robes, as, and he clothed each monk with a set of garments. Then the perfectly enlightened one, having instructed, roused, gladdened and delighted the Brahmin of of Varanjya with talks on the teachings, rose from his seat and departed. And the perfectly enlightened one, having risen early, went with robe and bowl and attended by his monks to Kutadanta's place of sacrifice and sat down on the prepared seat. And Kutadanta served the Buddha and his monks with the finest foods with his own hands until they were satisfied. And when the perfectly enlightened one had eaten and taken his hand away from the bowl, Kutadanta took the low stool and sat down to one side. Then the perfectly enlightened one, having instructed Kutadanta with a talk on the teachings, inspired him, aroused him with enthusiasm and delighted him, rose from his seat and departed. When he had eaten, he sits in silence for a while, but he does not let the time for the thanks go by when he has eaten and gives thanks he does not do so criticizing the meal or expecting another meal he instructs urges rouses and gladdens that audience with talk purely on the teachings when he has done so he rises from his seat and departs he walks neither too fast nor too slow and he does not go as one who wants to get away
1: all right so what we're going to get here is a bunch of discourses that are explaining how the monks should conduct themselves when they're visiting homes because that's essentially what they did is they visited homes and stayed in people's homes and the Buddha needed to teach them how to conduct themselves with moral conduct, not just what we see in the Eightfold Path, But a lot of these individuals had left their home and kind of took the Buddha as an adopted father and they would come at different ages. They might have come as early as, you know, six years old, seven years old or at any other point in time in their life. So they needed to learn how to eat and how to walk and how to sit and how to function in a lot of different ways. So there was a lot of detailed training like that that the Buddha gave with his ordained practitioners. One thing that I would like to point out here is how the Buddha is teaching the ordained practitioners to actually give thanks to the household practitioners for the offerings that they give. This is not something that I always see today in that ordained practitioners sometimes don't thank the household practitioners for the offerings that they give. And at the same time, you might observe that ordained practitioners sometimes describe how household practitioners aren't necessarily being very generous and that they're not maybe making offerings as it would be advisable for them to do well if an ordained practitioner is receiving offerings and they're not giving thanks and they're not showing respect to household practitioners this is the gamma that if you're not being polite kind friendly and respectful to the students and the household practitioners who are making offerings to you, then they probably aren't going to be making offerings for very long. So it's important that as ordained practitioners or teachers, that when students make offerings to us, that we thank them and we show our appreciation and we thank them for their kindness. And this will incentivize them to then be interested to continue to make offerings. But if someone is receiving offerings and they're unwilling to give that thanks, then it's likely that they're not going to be very well supported in the community. So ordained practitioners can see here that the Buddha is indeed guiding his ordained practitioners to give thanks to household practitioners for the offerings that they make. And this is very wise practice to do. So we can go on to the next one unless you guys have questions on that one. It
2: does not appear there are any questions at this time, sir. All right. What should monks do when in the midst of the community? In the midst of the community, he does not engage in rambling and pointless talk. Either he himself speaks on the teachings or he requests someone else to do so, or he adopts noble silence. This is the seventh cause and condition that leads to obtaining the wisdom fundamental to the spiritual life that has not been obtained and to its increase, maturation and fulfillment by development after it has been obtained this was taken from the eight causes and conditions that lead to obtaining the wisdom fundamental to the spiritual life when it has not been obtained good monks it is fitting for you you clansmen who have gone forth out of confidence from the home life into homelessness to sit together to discuss the teachings when you gather together monks you should do either of two things old discussion on the teachings, or maintain noble silence.
1: All right. Thank you, Miranda. Here the Buddha is helping the ordained practitioners to see that when you're out and about, just rambling chit-chat and pointless talk isn't actually helping anybody. Instead, what you can see here very clearly is he's focusing the monks, he's focusing the ordained practitioners on sharing the teachings or being quiet. Those are the two options that he's guiding them to do because as an ordained practitioner is receiving offerings, this is the support that the household practitioners are giving to us, to a teacher, and then what we should be giving back is teachings, not just rambling chit-chat that has no benefit to anybody. So this is a very wise practice for any ordained practitioner because that way they can establish mi, the one who people listen to. And then if you're always sharing the teachings that are the true teachings and the truth, you're actually beneficial and you're helping people to learn the teachings and develop their mind closer and closer to enlightenment. So this is a wise way for any ordained practitioner to practice. Questions on this chapter?
2: Uh, It does not appear there are any questions at this time, sir.
1: Okay. So now we're going to go to chapter 50. Is this the really long one, Miranda? Yes, sir. Yeah, it's really, really long. (laughs) Okay.
2: Um, Can we go to Max to read the first three pages of this chapter?
1: Thank
4: you, Miranda. Uh, Chapter 50, things monks should give high consideration. Those acting for the peacefulness or suffering of many people. First discourse. Monks, possessing three qualities, a well-known monk is acting for the harm of many people for the unhappiness of many people, for the ruin, harm, and suffering of many people, of heavenly beings and human beings. What three? He encourages them in unwholesome bodily action, unwholesome verbal action, and unwholesome mental qualities. Possessing these three qualities, a well-known monk is acting for the harm of many people, for the unhappiness of many people, for the ruin, harm, and suffering of many people, of heavenly beings and human beings. Monks possessing three qualities, a well-known monk is acting for the welfare of many people, for the peacefulness of many people, for the good welfare and peacefulness of many people, of heavenly beings and human beings. What three? He encourages them in wholesome bodily action, wholesome verbal action and wholesome mental qualities. Possessing these three qualities, a well-known monk is acting for the welfare of many people, for the peacefulness of many people, for the good welfare and peacefulness of many people, of heavenly beings and human beings. Those acting for the peacefulness or suffering of many people, second discourse. Monks possessing five qualities, an elder monk is acting for the harm of many people for the unhappiness of many people for the ruin harm and suffering of many people of heavenly beings and humans what five an elder is of long standing and has long gone forth he is well known and famous and has a community of many people including household practitioners and ordained practitioners he gains robes alms, food, lodgings, and medicines uh, and provisions for the sick. He has learned much, remembers what he has learned, and accumulates what he has learned. Those teachings that are good in the beginning, good in the middle and good in the end, with the right meaning and phrasing, which proclaim the perfectly complete and pure spiritual life. Such teachings as these He has learned much of, retained in mind, recited verbally, mentally investigated and penetrated well by viewing, well by view. He wrong view and has a distorted perspective. He draws many people away from the wholesome teachings and establishes them in unwholesome teachings, thinking the Elder monk is of long standing and has long gone forth. They follow his example. Thinking the elder monk is well known and famous and has a community of many people, including household practitioners and ordained practitioners, they follow his example. Thinking that elder monk gains robes, alms, food, lodgings, and medicines and provisions for the sick, they follow his example thinking the elder monk has learned much remembers what he has learned and accumulates what he has learned they follow his example possessing five qualities an elder monk is acting for the harm of many people for the unhappiness of many people for the ruin harm and suffering of many people of heavenly beings and humans monks possessing five other qualities An elder monk is acting for the welfare of many people for the peacefulness of many people for the good welfare and peacefulness of many people of heavenly beings and human beings. What five an elder is of long standing and has long gone forth. He is well known and famous and has a community of many people including household practitioners and ordained practitioners. He gains robes, alms, food, lodgings, and medicine and provisions for the sick. He has learned much, remembers what he has learned, and accumulates what he has learned. Those teachings that are good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end, with the right meaning and phrasing, which proclaim the perfectly complete and pure spiritual life, such teachings are these he has learned much of, retained in mind, recited verbally, mentally investigated, and penetrated well by view. Five, he holds right view and has a correct perspective. He draws many people away from unwholesome teachings and establishes them in the wholesome teachings, thinking the the elder monk is of long standing and has long gone forth. They follow his example. Thinking the elder monk is well-known and famous and has a community of many people, including household practitioners and ordained practitioners, they follow his example. Thinking the elder monk gains robes, alms food, lodgings, and medicines and provisions for the sick, they follow his example. Thinking the elder monk has learned much, remembers what he has learned, and accumulates what he has learned they follow his example possessing these five qualities an elder monk is acting for the welfare of many people for the peacefulness of many people for the good welfare and peacefulness of many people of heavenly beings and humans is that three pages
2: yes sir i'll take okay. over thank
4: you thank you
2: Demonstration of monks of the perfectly enlightened one. Monks, those monks who are deceivers, stubborn, talkers, impostors, arrogant, and unconcentrated are not monks of mine. They have strayed from the teachings and discipline, and they do not achieve growth, progress, and maturity in these teachings and discipline. But those monks who are honest, sincere, steadfast, cooperative, and well-concentrated are monks of mine. They have not strayed from these teachings and discipline, and they achieve growth, progress, and maturity in these teachings and discipline. What makes a monk? Monks, suppose a donkey was following right behind a herd of cattle, thinking, I'm a cow too, I am a cow too. But his appearance would not be like that of the cows, his whinny would not be like that of the cows, and his footprint would not be like that of the cows. Yet he follows right behind a herd of cattle thinking, I am a cow too, I am a cow too. So too, a monk might be following right behind the community of monks thinking, I am a monk too, I am a monk too. But his enthusiasm to undertake the training in the higher virtuous behavior, moral conduct, not like that of the other monks his enthusiasm to undertake the training in the higher mind mental discipline is not like that of the other monks his enthusiasm to undertake the training in the higher wisdom is not like that of the other monks yet he follows right behind the community of monks thinking i'm a monk too i'm a monk too therefore monks you should train yourselves thus We will have a determined interest to undertake the training in the higher virtuous behavior. We will have a determined interest to undertake the training in the higher mind. We will have a determined interest to undertake the training in the higher wisdom. It is in this way that you should train yourselves. One who sees the teachings sees the the Tathagata. Monks, Even if a monk taking hold of my outer robe were to follow right behind me, placing his feet in my footsteps, yet if he were to be craving for sensual pleasures, strong in his passions, evil in mind, corrupt in his decision-making, his mindfulness muddled, unalert, uncentered, his mind scattered, and his sense bases uncontrolled, then he would be far from me and I from him. Why is that? Because he does not see the teachings. Not seeing the teachings, he does not see me. But even if a monk were to live 100 leagues away, yet if he were to have no craving for sensual objects, were not strong in his passions, not evil in mind, uncorrupt in his decision making, his mindfulness established, alert, centered, his mind at signalness, his sense basis well restrained, then he would be near to me and I to him. Why is that? Because he sees the see- sees the teachings seeing the teachings he sees me demonstration of the four noble traditions monks there are these four noble traditions primal of long-standing traditional ancient untainted and never before tainted which are not being tainted and will not be tainted which are not rejected by wise ascetics and brahmins what for one here A monk is content with any kind of robe, and he speaks in praise of contentment with any kind of robe. And he does not engage in a wrong search, in what is improper, for the sake of a robe. If he does not get a robe, he is not agitated. And if he gets one, he uses it without being tied to it, obsessed with it, and blindly absorbed in it, seeing the danger in it and understanding the escape from it. Yet he does not praise himself or disparage others because of this. Any monk who is skillful in this, diligent, clearly comprehending, and ever mindful is said to be standing in an ancient primal noble tradition. Two, again, a monk is content with any kind of alms food, and he speaks in praise of contentment with any kind of alms food, and he does not engage in a wrong search in what is improper for the sake of alms food. If he does not get alms food, he is not agitated, And if he gets some, he uses it without being tied to it, obsessed with it, and blindly absorbed in it, seeing the danger in it, and understanding the escape from it. Yet he does not praise himself or disparage others because of this. Any monk who is skillful in this, diligent, clearly comprehending, and ever mindful, is said to be standing in an ancient, primal, noble tradition. Three, again, a monk is content with any kind of lodging, and... he speaks in praise of contentment with any kind of lodging. And he does not engage in a wrong search in what is improper for the sake of lodging. If he does not get lodging, he is not agitated. And if he gets it, he uses it without being tied to it, obsessed with it, and blindly absorbed in it, seeing the danger in it and understanding the escape from it. Yet he does not praise himself or disparage others because of this. Any monk who is skillful in this, diligent, clearly comprehending and ever mindful is said to be standing in an ancient primal noble tradition for again, a monk finds enjoyment in development of the mind is joyful with development of the mind find it, finds enjoyment in abandoning is joyful with abandoning. Yet he does not praise himself or disparage others because of this, any monk who is skillful in this diligent, clearly comprehending and ever mindful, is said to be standing in an ancient primal noble tradition. These monks are the four noble traditions, primal of long standing, traditional, ancient, untainted, and never before tainted, which are not being tainted and will not be tainted, which are not rejected by wise ascetics and Brahmins. Monks, when a monk possesses these four noble traditions, if he dwells in the East, he vanquishes discontentedness. Discontentedness does not vanquish him. If he dwells in the west, he vanquishes discontentedness. Discontentedness does not vanquish him. If he dwells in the north, he vanquishes discontentedness. Discontentedness does not vanquish him. If he dwells in the south, he vanquishes discontentedness. Discontentedness does not vanquish him. For what reason? Because he is a steadfast one who vanquishes discontentedness and excitement.
1: All right. Thank you, Max and Miranda. There's a lot of detailed teachings here that I share on each individual discourse within this chapter. So considering the time, what I'm going to do is just see if you guys have any questions above and beyond anything that we've read and anything that I've already shared in the uh, description and explanation of this uh, particular chapter. So I'll just see what questions you guys have rather than going through and teaching each individual aspect of this.
2: Um, It does not appear that there are questions about this chapter, but I do know that Tonka had a question about a previous chapter, sir.
1: Okay, we can go ahead and take that then.
2: Okay, let's go to Tonka for her question.
5: Thank you. I would like to go back to mindfulness a little bit and understand uh, how important it is to recognize the difference between feelings, state of mind and mental objects. I understand the importance of recognizing a bodily sensation in order to cut it off as soon as possible. But once it becomes a feeling, sometimes I have trouble to, uh, to, to really know if it's a feeling or a state of mind and mental object is not still very clear uh, for me, what is what. So I'm just wondering, for the sake of the practice at this time, how important it is to know the difference between feeling state of mind and mental object? Is it something I'm going to develop in time, or is it very important to pay more attention and develop that skill to understand the difference between these three?
1: Okay. Let me help you develop it right now. So you already know bodily sensations. After that, then it becomes a feeling. So now the mind's angered, right? And you see that feeling come into the mind. If that feeling is persisting, then you're going to see for multiple hours, right? That the condition of the mind is affected beyond just a few moments, a few minutes. It's going to be 15 minutes, 20 minutes, an hour, two hours. This is the condition of the mind. That's that third aspect of the four foundations of mindfulness. So if a particular feeling, it it persists, it's going to affect the condition of the mind, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour. That's that third (laughs) foundation of mindfulness. The fourth one, which is the mental object, in this case, let's describe ill-will. If you have this mental object of ill-will, which if you're not at least at the third stage of enlightenment, then there is ill-will in the mind, then that's going to be there even without contact through the six sense bases. In order for discontentedness to arise and become a feeling in the mind, there has to be contact through the six sense bases. So you see something, it's disagreeable, and now you feel the bodily sensations of anger arising, then it becomes a feeling, there's now this feeling of anger in the mind, and now it affects the condition of the mind, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, what have you. That's bodily sensations, feelings, and condition of the mind. But mental object, there can be ill will in the mind without having any contact whatsoever that's what a mental object is, is that it persists in the mind even without contact through the six sense bases. So you might be sitting somewhere and you can observe that the mind is just disgruntled and angry and frustrated and, you know, wishing harm perhaps on another being. This would be like a real extreme aspect of ill will. But then that mental object of ill will gets degraded more and more and more and it gets smaller and smaller and diminishes to the point where eventually it's eliminated from the mind. So the mental object is going to persist regardless of any contact through the six sense bases. That's how you'll know that it's a mental object. So you would like to know all four of these and be able to identify all four of these in the mind so that then when you observe them, you know how to take appropriate action. With bodily sensations, feelings, and condition of the mind, the appropriate action is to cut it off and let it go, right? Apply right effort and cut that off and let it go. Eliminate unwholesome quality from the mind. With a mental object, the appropriate action is going to be dependent on what the mental object is. In this case, if there's ill will and you see that mental object, then you know that the appropriate action is to practice loving-kindness meditation. That's what's going to break up and work to break up that mental object. And then practice loving-kindness in daily life through your intention, speech, and actions. So if you can observe that there's that mental object of ill will in the mind, then you know the appropriate action is to continue with your loving-kindness meditation and continue to practice loving kindness through your intention, speech, and action in daily life. With bodily sensations, feelings, and condition of the mind, where you see anger, hatred, and ill will arising there, then the appropriate action is to apply right effort, cut it off, and let it go. And then with each individual aspect of the mind, whenever you see discontentedness arising of any type, the answer is always to apply right effort, cut it off, and let it go. But with the mental object, the remedy is going to be different depending on the mental object. With ill will, it's loving kindness meditation and practicing loving kindness in daily life. But another mental object is something like conceit or complacency or central desire or things like this and they all have individual remedies that i've taught in other classes and if you need help with any of those particular mental objects or others it's important to know what is the exact remedy for that specific Mm -hmm. mental object because that's the only way you're able to transform the mind and eliminate that mental object
5: Okay. So are all mental objects unwholesome or can a mental object be
1: wholesome? A mental object can be wholesome as well. They're not all unwholesome. We typically tend to talk about them as unwholesome because we're typically working to eliminate those. But a mental object can also be described as a mental state as well. So loving kindness is a mental state Compassion is a mental state. Sympathetic joy, equanimity, these are mental states. And these are also mental objects as well. And you're cultivating those. And then those are exact remedies uh, and antidotes for the unwholesome mental objects or mental states.
5: Okay, so um, state of mind uh, and uh, mental objects. When it comes uh, to wholesome things like loving kindness and um, compassion, like they kind of they become the same.
1: A mental object and a mental state is the same thing. They're just two different terms describing describing the same thing okay so
5: they are the same thing mental object and mental state
1: yes they're the same thing i described this back in i think it's chapter five when i describe uh right mindfulness and i'm describing mental objects i i define a mental object as a mental state and i describe it as persistent but yet dynamic and continuously changing but yet it can also eventually it becomes permanent something like Something like ill will is impermanent because it's a conditioned mental state. It's a conditioned mental object. So ill will is impermanent. But when you fully cultivate loving kindness, this is an unconditioned mental state. So it's permanent once you fully cultivate it and bring it to perfection.
5: I see. Okay. That's where my confusion was. Thank you very
2: much. You're welcome. It does not appear that we have any other questions at this time, sir.
1: All right. Well, thank you all for joining the class, whether you join live or on the live streams or you're listening to this on the replay. Thank you to the moderators and the readers who read these chapters. This was really nice to walk through this class and share the teachings of the Buddha with you. As you have questions, you're always welcome to reach out through asking questions in the online classes, through posting in the Facebook group, sending a private message, or scheduling personal guidance anytime that you might need help. Tomorrow in our group learning program, we're going to be continuing with our retreat series, Harmony and Relationships. This class is going to be titled Sharing the Path to Enlightenment, How to Guide Children on the Path to Enlightenment. So I'll help you learn how to guide children along the path to enlightenment, whether it's your children or your grandchildren or uh, nieces and nephews and people like this, this is where you're gonna learn the best way to be able to help others along the path that are around you. Uh, And these these teachings are gonna help you with children, but they might also help you with life partners and other people that are around you too. So even though it's titled and geared towards helping parents and grandparents with children, even if you don't have children, this can actually help you as well. And you might even have friends that have children that ask you questions, but I'm going to be essentially helping you understand how to skillfully help others along the path. And we'll be discussing that tomorrow in our group learning program. And then on Wednesday, we're going to be doing loving kindness meditation in our class. So you're welcome to join that as well. Thank you all for joining. We'll see you guys in a future class. Have a very wonderful and lovely rest of your day. Sawadee